now, back to the Pete McMurray Show. Here's Pete, Rob, and Lisa. Daryl Hall was just on the show a few weeks ago talking about how he'll be at the Chicago Auditorium Theater and couldn't have been more excited to announce his special guest, Todd Rundgren. And our friend Todd Rundgren joins us now. How are you, man? I'm great, actually. Because oh, <laughs> I got a day off. Finally. I feel like we're at the point where the four of us should be able to text each other. And if we happen to travel to Hawaii, we could stay at your house. Yeah, just bring a tent. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, does that mean we have to sleep in the backyard? Yes, Pete. <laughs> There's plenty of room. <laughs> Do you invite friends to Hawaii? Hey, next time in your Hawaii, just stay at my house. Do people show up? Well, on occasion, but we had up until recently a very full house because of the pandemic. One of my sons, he was uh, living in San Francisco and obvious he was actually doing uh, staging for shows and stuff like that. He was working for a staging company and of course nothing was happening. Right. He came out to stay uh, in Kauai with us. That took up a room for a while. We were also hosting my wife, Michelle's niece in the house because she was between residences and could, hadn't found a place to live yet. Our uh, <laughs> foster son was living at the house oh as well. And we have Hold on, let me book my flight. Housekeeper. Where's my phone? It's around here yeah. somewhere. I'm just going to book it we up. We also have a housekeeper who lives in the house <laughs> permanently as well. So, you know, we were having to pump out the septic tank every two months. Everybody's <laughs> showering all the time. A lot of that Ridex <laughs> down the uh, toilet. Yeah. Is just... Yeah. So we pretty much, you know, made everyone plan to get out of the house so that we can do some renovation that is long overdue in parts of the house. So great um, excuse. When we're done the reno, mm-hmm. get back to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, and maybe you can sleep in the house. You know, you know what I found? I've, I've been to Hawaii a few times. Absolutely love it. And you have this kind of romantic idea of, you know, if I can do it, I would move to Hawaii. But then those who are natives of Hawaii and live there, they're like, well, you might want to reconsider. <laughs> well, thoughts. some people get what they call island fever. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they right. go for a vacation, maybe or a couple of vacations. They think, boy, I'd like to live here. Not realizing, you know, that the thing you were doing on vacation is kind of your only option. You know, <laughs> right? You can't vacation That's it. Beach everything. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you can't go, you know, to the big city. There is no big city. There's no uh, Nobu. Uh, not on my island. I don't know And yeah, the, you know, pretty much nothing else to divert you, but you know, being in nature, and I don't mind that. Because I always find a way to keep busy. I I get a little nutty if I don't have something to do. I thought it might get to me being stuck at home for almost two years during the pandemic. Uh. But it wasn't that that got to me. What got to me was the fact that nobody knew how long this was going to last. And we kept, you know, we had a tour planned and then we kept moving it three months, another three months, six months. You know, after the fourth time it got moved, I said, you know, I have to. It's not that I have to travel, but I have to play yeah, like a real show. And that's Mm -hmm. when we went to Chicago for a month and a half and mounted a whole virtual tour where we played 25 cities and all from the same venue in Chicago. 
And uh, it really, it kind of satisfied what I needed to do, you know, to not go two years without ever playing anything. And it uh, was really satisfying, I believe, for the people who tuned into it because they hadn't seen a live music, like real live music for such a long time. Right. But a real live show, you know, with all of the effects and everything, you know. Well, it kept you sane, too. I think we all did something like that just so we could have some normalcy in our lives. And you are always on tour. You're a rock and roller. So you're yeah, always on tour. And- the traveling's the worst part. You know, the playing is the best part. The traveling's the worst part. Although, you know, it does give me an opportunity to come to cities that I love, like Chicago and Cleveland and and New Orleans and, mm-hmm. and places like that. So... Daryl Hall was on a few weeks ago, and uh, we were huge fans of Daryl Hall. John Oates was just on the show. (laughs) We love John Oates separately. It's interesting how Daryl told us that he grew up singing around a garbage can, you know, on the street corner when he was 14 years old. He's Uh a Philly guy. You're a Philly guy. I don't see you singing around a garbage can back in the day. How are you two friends? How did that happen? Well, we never crossed paths when we were in Philadelphia. He was in some other distant neighborhood, I suppose. I grew up actually in a suburb of West Philadelphia in a post-war housing development. No, we didn't have burning trash cans in the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> like in the movie Rocky. Yeah, like in the movie Rocky. But that was, you know, that's more of an urban thing. You know, it's uh, burning trash cans and such. But, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we did meet, well, shortly before I produced War Babies, you know, I met him and he was living in New York by then and not singing around a trash can. It's interesting that few people realize how eclectic Hall and Oates were in their first couple records. You know, they were sounded almost like a folk act sometimes, you know, yeah. Yeah. and sometimes they do a little jazzy thing like Abandoned Luncheonette. And that sort of thing. And She's Gone was just one of a variety of styles that they, you know, that they were working in. But when it became a hit, nobody wanted to hear anything else from them but that. Uh, I think part of the um, reason that Daryl's, you know, wants to do this tour is he rarely gets an opportunity to get away from that and do the more personal stuff that he's worked on over the years. Sure, I get it. Todd, I'm going to ask you to hold on for a second as we take a quick time out. But when we come back, I want to ask you about one of the most successful albums of all time that you produced and the artist just passed away. More with Todd Rundgren on the way. More of the Pete McMurray Show next. Now, back to the Pete McMurray Show. Todd Rundgren will be in town with Daryl Hall minus John Oates at Chicago's Auditorium Theater. For tickets, go to ToddRundgren.com. Todd, you're going to be singing with Daryl on stage. What are you guys going to be singing? I'm going to do my set, which will be about an hour. Daryl will do his set, which will probably be more than an hour. And then we'll do an encore in which we sing one of my songs and we sing one of his songs. Great. Just like at Daryl's house. (laughs) <laughs> just like except there's people in the audience i already have my tickets yeah, by the way watching. yeah <laughs> hey todd I'm, I'm gonna steal one of pete and lisa's fans because they are the music experts on our show i want to ask you where do you draw inspiration from what did you as a kid start listening to what motivates you what, what's what's in there the place i was coming from when i was listening to music when i was little didn't include the option of actually writing any of it you know it's just 
I was a way into music and way into all styles of music. My dad had pretty good taste in music and conversely refused to have rock and roll played in the house. And so I got saturated with show tunes and, and contemporary classical records and that sort of thing. As I got older, of course, the Beatles and pop music, I didn't really care that much for most pop music before the Beatles, except for like R&B music, which is something I guess Daryl and I have in common, because before that, it was like Frankie Avalon, you know, <laughs> Fabian and people, you know, right. these white that could barely sing. Um, <laughs> yeah, they were better actors and singers. As I got older, I got into jazz uh, with the help of a college professor I met. I would get into electronic music because there was a, a record stall in the mall near my house. And I would go through the cutout bins and buy things if they had an interesting covers. And electronic music covers were always really like op art graphics and things yes, like that. Yeah. So having no idea what I was what it was going to sound like, I would buy it because of what the cover looked like. And then suddenly I discovered that I sort of understood electronic music. In those days, I was just a listener. I didn't think about what I would write about if I had the opportunity. And for the first couple of years when I was a writer, all I wrote about was the girl who broke my heart in high school. Like everybody does. You know? Silly girls. <laughs> like I hadn't found a voice of my own really until, well, until, you know, like a wizard, a true star, when I started to explore other consciousnesses. And so oh, I, I think that all led me to what is my what is my inspiration nowadays? And that's just like human behavior. I feel like a musical anthropologist. I just try and figure out why people do the things they do, you know, are experiencing or thinking. Um, then you have a better chance of getting them to pay attention. Makes sense. We're talking with Todd Rundgren. He'll be appearing with Daryl Hall at Chicago's Auditorium Theater. Every single time we have you on the show, we think of new things to ask you. First of all, I want to say the reason that we love having you on is because you're such a deep thinker. And the way that you just described everything about connecting with the people that listen to your music and, you know, being at a record store, I remember going through the discount bins. But I wanted to ask you about something that I've never asked you about and I always forget. And it reminded me when Meatloaf passed away, you produced Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. Now, can you walk us through that whole process? Because number one, they told you that they had a deal with RCA Records. They didn't. Number two, well, they, they didn't. By the time we by the time we started the record, if they hadn't had a deal, I never would have taken on the project because I wasn't prepared, you know, to pay for um, all the crazy. <laughs> well, ideas. that was my next yeah. question. Uh, Nobody had any money, and you paid for the album. Yeah. Well, it, as it turned out, you know, I think what happened was. When they started sending bills, like, you know, we hired all, the, all of the band for, you know, for the record. We got together like 10 days before we started recording because we intended to do it all live. So to get these guys, we probably had to pay them something. And so Meatloaf was probably sending the bills to his label and his label's freaking out at this point, you know when they start to realize how much money is going to go into this project. And they, I think Meatloaf was on the phone with them and they said, we're not paying for this. And that's when his relationship with ironically Utopia records, a subsidiary of RCA. Wow. That's when he left that label. And I had to like scramble and go to Bearsville and say, 
pay for the record and put it on my tab and I'll, um, and you'll have write a first refusal. And they turned it down after it was done. And so did Warner Brothers who distributed Bearsville. And so did just about every other label in the world. And it wasn't until a little tiny subsidiary of Epic Records called Cleveland International and Steve Popovich, a real old fashioned record guy, heard the record and believed in it and wouldn't give up on it. And if he had given up on it, probably we wouldn't be talking about meatloaf today. Isn't that crazy? When you're in the weeds like that recording, especially an album like Bat Out of Hell, did you think to yourself, oh my God, this is going to be a train wreck or I just want to get through it and just end it? Or did you think, well, we can make a little money off this? Well, I usually never think about the money. I'm I'm a, <laughs> I characterize myself, well, I have a manager to worry about that. For oh, good, good, good. Somebody's got to worry about it. You know, I don't do business, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm there as a surrogate for, you know, for the average listener in a way, you know, I'm there just trying to make a record that an audience wants to hear. I don't calculate whether it's going to be a hit or not. Mm-hmm. I can't guarantee that. There have been lots of records that uh, even the label would say, that's a hit, that's a number one. And you release it and for some reason, it doesn't catch on, you know. So I think that's you know, why when we were done, nobody really heard it. The songs were all seven minutes long, you know, <laughs> really long. And then when you saw Meatloaf, you say, how are you going to make a heart throb out of this guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Looks like he's going to have a heart attack. <laughs> um, but they worked so hard on it, you know, that it and persisted for so long that it finally succeeded. So you would have to say that there is still some value in, you know, in hard work and belief in what you're doing. Did you like it at the time though? Did you say, ah, this is pretty good. I know you have to take the emotion out of it as being a producer, but did you say, "Mm, not bad? Well, I thought it, it achieved the goals that we were going for. You know, you don't use terms like good and bad. Isn't it? Isn't it? You don't use those terms good and bad. You know, it's like, you have a, a goal that you're trying to achieve. Right. It's too subjective to call it good or bad. Okay. You know, I can't stand Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the same as me saying she's bad at what she does. Okay. I just can't stand what she does. But it's not your bag. <laughs> so in that sense, you know, it wasn't like this is good or this is bad. But, you know, it was kind of a relief to get it completed at yeah, least sure. and to stop the bleeding. <laughs> I mean, there was the session where, you know, I knew Phil Rizzuto as a salesman for the money store. Hi, this is Phil Rizzuto for the money store. I never followed baseball enough to realize, you know, he's Scooter Rizzuto, you know, famous right. Yankee. If people don't know, he's a baseball announcer and you got him to do something on the album where he announced yeah, on Paradise yeah, by first the base, dashboard. second base, third base. Play, yes. Between the play-by-play on Paradise and the Dashboard Light. And we're paying him $5,000. And I'm thinking, why does he have to do it? You know? Yeah, I just thought it was like some <laughs> dude in the band. $5,000, you know? He reads this thing like twice and he's got $5,000. So. Wow. And, you know, and meanwhile, you know, the next thing ha- that's happening is Simon wants a symphony orchestra for the next song. Oh, who know? doesn't? So it's this money hand over fist making this record, you know. And I'm afraid that, you know, at some point, Bearsville might refuse to pay for any more of it. But um, but they did. They paid for the whole thing. Um, I'm sure they got eventually compensated for it. 
as did I, but I didn't see a producer's check for like eight months after the record (laughs) was released. You you brought up Taylor Swift. Clearly, she has a following, but in my mind pops the politics of music and how that is a component of what you guys do. You're a creative guy. You're a free thinker. But then when you're doing a project, now all of a sudden the rubber hits the road and enter in the politics of making music. It's about audience, obviously. You know, it's about finding an audience for that music. You can make any kind of music you want, but ultimately you want to be able to live off of it. Uh, Something has happened in the last 20, 30 years, 25 years, that's just completely changed the nature of the audience. And that was that boys lost interest in music as a as a primary source of entertainment and started migrating to video games so boys started spending all their money on video games that meant that the audience was all adolescent girls uh, meanwhile the in guys defense started- of adolescent girls I think adolescent boys go through those emotions too. In defense, yeah, of no, but they, no, we don't. They, <laughs> never have. Yeah, but like I say, the the way that they sublimate those is by playing a video game where you shoot people all the time, or yeah, or yeah. Grand Theft Auto, you know, where you run over prostitutes and <laughs> and steal their handbags. What a game! <laughs> what a game! Well, Taylor Swift, she found a lane, and it works. And by the way, I think you did pretty good on Bad Out of Hell. It sold over forty million copies, right? It's one of the best-selling uh, yeah, albums in the history of music. Like <laughs> Bought me my house in Hawaii. So. <laughs> oh, oh right. yeah! <laughs> I can't wait to visit. That's going to be bat- great. out of hell chateau. <laughs> we love it there. The three great. of us hanging out with Todd in his backyard. I would never torture him like that. <laughs> I have too much respect for him. Oh, man. I'll just drive by with Dog the Bounty Hunter and wave hi. <laughs> Does he live in Hawaii, Hawaii, too? He's a Hawaii guy as well. We'll just drive by and... You know. Those are stalkers. <laughs> Who are the famous people in Hawaii, Todd? Do you ever see? I feel like all the celebrities hang out with each other. You're one of those guys that don't do that. But who lives in Hawaii? Well, famous- when we first moved there, big name in local uh, musicianship was Graham Nash. Graham Nash. Okay. He was living there. And Peter Buck from R.E.M. was living not too far from where I lived. So anytime he would co- he wasn't living there, he had a place and he would come uh, during the holidays, so we would hang out together when that happened. There's a lot of actors there as well. There's musicians. There's also like Pierce Brosnan lives on the island. Um, Craig T. Nelson lives on the island. Wow. Um, right now, Rick Rubin, famous oh, rap producer, he's living there. Yeah. And it's funny, a lot of musicians ha- have kind of made it a, a, a regular stop. Like, for instance, Donald Glover comes there regularly and my uh, foster son saw him in a store and gave him my email like about eight months ago. That's great. Last week, I got an email from Childish Gambino. (laughs) That's amazing. I love it. (laughs) He realized, oh, he had my number, you know, so he struck up a conversation and that was fun. I never met him actually on the island. He's such a talented dude. It seems like artists always end up finding each other. I love it. It's great to see you again, man. Love having you on the show, and I can't it's wait can't wait to see you and Daryl together at Chicago's Auditorium Theater, and I can't wait for the four of us to have dinner together in Hawaii. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Todd Rungren, everybody. Terrific. We'll see you then. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Bye-bye. Man. Thanks, Todd.